I'm going to ask you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4 as we'll pick it back up in verse 17, looking at verses 17 to 24. As I was uh, going over this passage over and over and over again, and we looked at part of it last week. This is a two-part message because it has a two-part title. You can see it in your bulletin. It says, Off with the grave clothes and on with the grace clothes. Off with the grave clothes, on with the grace clothes, because if you're a new man or a new woman in Christ, alive people don't walk around in grave cloths. Amen? You don't walk around in the stinky grave wrappings of a dead man. You know, I, I, I'm 41 years old, and I, you know, I try to stay in shape a little bit. And it's very time-consuming, but it gets harder the older you get. Amen? It's, it's a little more work, but there's times that I've gone to the gym with my little with my little bag, and I got my little workout racket in there, my racquetball thing, and just different stuff, um, little bathroom kit. So I get there, you get all sweaty, you go into the locker room, you go take a shower, you come back to the locker, you open up the bag, and you forgot your clothes. And the only way to walk out of the gym is to put on the stinky old sweaty wet clothes. Miserable. You only have to get home again to shower again, right? As a new creature in Jesus Christ, there is no reason for you or for me to walk in the stinky garment of sinful humanity, you see. There's no reason. We are called to put off the old man and walk in the new man. Because as Ryan shared, you have a completely new nature in Christ. Okay? If you've ever been taught that we have two natures, that's not true. You have one nature, you've been baptized into Christ. The nature that you now have is the nature of the living God of the universe. Now, we learned last week that we still have that sin of humanity, right? We're still the, the new you, the new creature, the, the new nature is cloaked in humanity. And that's the sin in which Paul says is still in me, right? You still have sin in you. I still have sin in me. But you are a new creature in Christ, enabled to walk in a manner that glorifies who? The Lord God Almighty and the one who saved you, Jesus Christ. So... With that said, let's go ahead and read verses 17 through 24, Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll continue in this study to look at the contrast today between the old man and the new man. The old man and the new man. The old woman, the new woman in Christ. Verse 17. Paul says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you, 
put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Father, we thank you for the new man and the new women that you've made us in Christ, that the old has passed, that all things have become new, and I pray that you'd impart to us by the supernatural power of your Holy Spirit a deeper understanding of that rich eternal truth. Prepare the hearts of everyone in here today to receive this truth, to walk out edified and built up in the truth. And may those, Lord, who are yet cloaked in a sinful fallen nature, who are trapped and victims of sin and death, alienated from God, that you'd open their hearts and their understanding to see the grace provided through the finished work of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, now... We spent months in Ephesians. We've been here since March going through Ephesians. So when we looked at the first three chapters of Ephesians, we see how Paul writes. We see how Paul teaches. Okay? He always teaches theology first, doctrine, the mind of God, the thinking of God. And then he gives the wherefores and the therefores. Because this is true, therefore this is how we live. So he spends the first three chapters talking about the work of Christ, that you were chosen before the foundation of the earth. Before the foundation of the earth, God knew you. He called you. He predestined you to this place of grace, stepping into a relationship with Him. Special. Call. And that through His divine work in you, He makes you, because of the finished work of Christ, your sins being nailed to the cross, you stand righteous in His sight. It's called positional righteousness. You are completely pure, completely forgiven. You in position are as righteous as Jesus himself. Positionally. That's called imputed righteousness. That's righteousness taken from the account of Christ himself, which is placed on your account. That's righteousness by imputation. That's imputed righteousness. If a billionaire came up to you and said, and gave you blank checks. He said, you can write a check to anyone, anywhere, anyhow, anyone you want, any amount you want. That money's not yours, amen? That's money that was placed on your account. You never even have to balance it. Okay? That is financial gain by imputation. That's someone putting all that money in your account, never ending. That's imputation. You have the righteousness of God by imputation. It's put on your account. You're cloaked in it. You're covered in it. When he sees you, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. How perfect is that righteousness? Flawless. That's your position. Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians talking about your position in Christ, talking about the work on the inside that God has done supernaturally. He called you, believer. You didn't go to him. He brought you to himself. He softened your heart. Rome, uh, Ephesians 1, he opened the eyes of your understanding so that you were able to believe faith given to you as a gift to believe. Amen? Righteousness by imputation. He goes into chapters 4 through 6 describing now the newness on the inside that it produces newness on the outside. And that's where we are, practically walking out, practically living out what we already are on the inside. This is righteousness by impartation. He's imputed it to you. He's put it on your account. And now he also enables you. He imparts it to you. He empowers you. He, he 
lives in you and through you so that you can live out what you are on the inside, you see? So that's the transition. The transition is from inside work to outside manifestation of his internal work. Amen? So, in Ephesians chapter 4, there's this transition. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. Now, we've been over this numerous times. Here's your position in Christ. We're called to walk worthy of the position, right? No matter how you live, no matter how you act, if you're a true believer, your position doesn't change. Amen? We're living from this, not trying to gain this. You're living from this. Therefore, he says, because this is what you are, live like it. Walk worthy of what you are. Walk in a manner that reflects the righteousness of the Son. That's what he's talking about. In a walk, the word walk means daily conduct. Lifestyle. Do I reflect Christ in my life? Does my life reflect the fact that I'm a child of God? Does my life reflect on the outside that which I am inside? He said, I beg you, I beseech you to walk worthy of that calling. The calling is the calling to salvation. So now we come into verse 17 to the second therefore. Okay? This walk begins with humility. No one gets saved who hasn't come to the end of themselves. No one gets saved that hasn't fallen on their face before God and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer you. There's nothing I can do to work myself into the favor of your sight. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, you see. When a person becomes poor in spirit, he comes to the end of himself. He realizes, she realizes that he is morally bankrupt, unable to meet this standard. But by God's grace, he places you there. Here we are in the second, therefore, verse 17. He says, there, I therefore testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Daily conduct. Gentiles, the word ethne, we get the word ethnic from it. Meaning peoples, nations. Oftentimes it's translated as heathen or pagan, non-believers. Context here, non-believer. Because this is what you are, no longer live like the rest of the world. No longer live like those who don't know God. You see, that's what he's saying. I therefore testify in the Lord that you should no longer live like, walk like the rest of the Gentiles in the futility of their mind. You could change the word Gentile here to Americans. I therefore testify that you no longer walk as the rest of the Americans walk in the futility of their mind. I therefore testify in the Lord that you no longer live like all the people around you at your work, at your school, in your neighborhood, in your family. The bottom line, we're no longer to live like the rest of the world because of who you are and what you are. You have eternal life. The song says your sins have been nailed to the cross. The righteousness of Christ has been nailed to you. You see? Good exchange, amen? That is an exchange. That is a money-back guarantee. Money-back guarantee. See, as a believer, you've been freed from the world system. You've been freed from the bondage of sin. You've been freed from the price of sin, which is death and ultimate separation from God. You've been freed from it. No longer live as a victim. That's what he's saying. Don't live like a victim because you are a victor. 
First John 5, 4, mark this. First John 5, verse 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. If you're a believer, you're born again. That, new, that old nature, the nature you're born with is dead. You have a whole new nature. You're born again. That's what it means. You're born again, regenerated, new nature. So whatever's born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This, this word overcomer is Nike or Nike. It's where we get the Nike missile on your tennis shoe, right? It literally means victor, conqueror. That's what you are. You are a victor. You are a conqueror in Christ. Christ has conquered the world. Christ has conquered the world system in your place, you see? And by doing it and being nailed to the cross, he, his, conquering, his conquering victory has been placed to you, given to you, placed on your account. You're victors. Amen? No longer a victim, but you're a victor. A victor. Because I'll tell you what, the, ba the basic reality of salvation, that it transforms you from a loser to a victor. Loser in the sense that when you are in sin, you're born with the nature you're born with, a human sinful nature, you're lost. You're alienated from God. The Bible says we were at war with God before you became a believer. If you set up and bow up against God in, 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 in war, who loses? Who loses? You do. I do. But you are no longer alienated from God. You are now a friend of God, brought into the family of God by His grace. So therefore, cloak yourself in the grace clothes. Take off the grave clothes. Don't live like the Gentiles. Don't live like the Americans. Live like who you are on the inside. That's what he's talking about. That's exactly where he's going. Jesus said in John 16:33, I have overcome what? The world. And by entering into Christ, you overcome the world system. The manner in which the world conducts itself. The manner in which the world feeds its fleshful, lustful desires. You see? No longer enslaved to it. You've been freed. Citizens of heaven. Amen? Your citizenship as a believer is heavenly. Your name is written in the membership. Speaking of membership, you're a true member of the family of God if you're a true Christian. The household of God, as Ephesians says. Citizens of heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. You and I on this earth are nothing but pilgrims passing through to rightly reflect and represent our Savior. We're little Jesuses. Did you know that? Christian. Little Christ. That's exactly what we are. Little Christ to the world. Little beacons of hope to the world. Little gospel messages of hope. Gospel means good news. The world is condemned with bad news. Amen. The reason the gospel is good news is because there's bad. You never share the gospel till you share the bad news. When you share the bad news, then the good news is good news. Amen? The gospel is not just say this prayer and you're in. That's not what it is. You must understand your depravity. You must understand your sin. You must understand your destiny, which is eternal separation from God. And to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. Bad news, isn't it? Therefore, the good news is really good news. Christ already met the standard. Call on Him. Step into Him. Yield to Him. And the standards met on your account. And then when one begins to grow, he's encouraged and exhorted to live out the position you have, you see. Christ-likeness.
So here in Ephesians, Paul's defining this transformation. And we're going to move today into this contrast between the old self and the new self. The non-believer and the believer. And we're going to see this contrast and what it looks like. But I'm going to do some review first because uh, it's important that we understand Paul's thinking in this. Paul's a deep, deep thinker. And he says, you know, words have meaning, amen? So we want to dissect each word that we can as exhaustively as we can without being here for, you know, ten years in one little book. But, you know, salvation is this, you guys. Ephesians 4.23, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your what? Of your mind. See, salvation is a transformation. Check it out. Salvation is a transformation of one's thinking. When the Bible says, repent and call on the door of Jesus Christ and be saved, what repentance means is to have a change of thought, a change of thinking, that your process of thinking changes. Change your thinking and call on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, you see? Repentance, a change of thought. It's a change of direction. Your thinking led you here like this. Before I came to Christ, guess who was God? I was. So I thought. I was on the throne of my life. Now, whether or not I believe Christ was Lord and Savior of the world was irrelevant because He is no matter what I think. He remains God. He is God no matter what you think. He's God. It was when He brought me to the conscious awareness of my sinful self and the nature I was born with, and He opened the eyes of my understanding that I stepped off the throne, turned around, allowed Him that first place, allowed Him to be who He is. That's the first step of, of change thinking. Change thinking. Repentance. Christianity is a change of thinking. Christianity today, for those of you who've been walking with God for a long time, the process and transformation of thinking never ceases. Because the entirety of the Christian life is an ongoing, continual place of what? Repentance. Change thinking. It's a process. Okay? A murder becomes a murder as a result of thinking. A pedophile becomes a pedophile by a process of decrepit, twisted thinking. He entertains thoughts long enough, okay, and eventually he lives out the, that thinking process. A thief becomes a thief by a process of thinking. A homosexual becomes a homosexual by a process of thinking. No one is born a homosexual. No one is born a pedophile. No one is born a murderer. No one is born a thief. In the fallen human nature that man is born with, he becomes his thinking and the process of thinking that he entertains himself with. Christian, don't, I said this last week, don't listen to the rhetoric of the culture that surrounds us, okay? Don't listen to it. Because it's lies from the pit of hell. I said nobody's born a homosexual any more than someone's born a pedophile. Again, it's thinking. God has transformed your thinking process as you stepped into faith in Him. You are a new creature. You don't think like you did before, amen? If you think as you did when you were a non-Christian, examine yourself, right? We must examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Christian thinking. You know, you sow a thought, you reap an act. You sow an act, you reap a habit. You sow a habit and you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap a destiny. That's just the common, natural way of man. Natural way of man. Now, I want to review. I want to spend some time reviewing here in this whole 
the characteristics of pagan or unsaved thinking. Okay? Before we get to that, just turn back to chapter 2 of Ephesians and remember from where God has brought you. If you ever get puffed up in your faith, if you ever get puffed up in the knowledge that you have of God, if you ever get puffed up to the point to where you look down upon non-believers in a way that you want anything to do with them as far as spending time ensuring the truth, remember where God brought you from. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. In you he made what? Alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you what? Once walked, past tense, Christian, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as what? The others. The others. That's what you were. That's what I was. But by God's grace... Those sins were nailed to the, the cross. You're a new creature. All of the grace means unmerited favor was placed upon you, covers you. You're saved by grace. Grace, mercy. Oh, praise God for his mercy. So thankful for his mercy. But look at some of the characteristics. Really quickly, we'll go over these. Verse 17, the non-believer. Uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Characteristic number one of a, of a non-believer is that... He says, no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. This is absolute self-centered focus. Futility of the mind. Self-centeredness to the max. You are your Lord, non-believer. You were your Lord. Non-believers, you are your Lord. Self-centeredness. This is vanity. Emptiness. Uselessness. You see, when one is consumed in their thinking, a godless means a, God, a godless way of thinking, you get consumed with self, with fulfilling self, and then idolatry sets in because you begin to worship and fulfill everything that who wants? You want. Everything that that person wants, everything that I want when I was outside of Christ, that's idolatry. I was serving self. Futility of the mind. And that leads to the second characteristic, which is in verse 18. Having your understanding darkened. Being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Characteristic number two of a non-believer is that they're ignorant of the truth. Ignorance of God. I'm the master of my own destiny. I rule my life. I will become what I want to become. And what this leads to, you guys, check it out. This is willful suppression of the truth. Because we looked at Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. There's no human being in the world that will stand before God who has an excuse that they did not know. Because nature itself reveals the invisible attributes of God, Romans 1 says. And if a person responds to the speck of light that God has provided just through creation, God's going to give them more light. God will draw that person unto himself. When that person responds, he gives them more light. He brings them to the place of belief. But man, because he loves his sin, man loves to worship self, 
as R.C. Sproul puts it, it's like a big old spring that they push down, and the longer they resist, they push it down more, and they push it down more, and they got to hold it down more, because if they let go, boom, you see? They hold it down. Conscience seared. Callous in their thinking. Characteristic, futility of the mind. The thinking's wrong. They're ignorant of the truth. They're the master of their own destiny. Destiny, they suppress the truth that God's revealed just through nature alone. And then that leads to verse 18. Again, ignorance of that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Blindness of their heart. Who, being past dealing, verse 9, have given themselves over. They've given themselves over to lewdness. Callousness sets in. Darkness of the heart sets in. And one, when one alienates himself from God, check this out. When one alienates himself from God and begins to resist the conviction of God in the heart, begins to resist conscience, which every human being has, saved and unsaved, everyone has a conscience. When you suppress the consciousness that God puts upon you in the shame of sin and you suppress it, you know what you become? Callous. Darkness. And then the judgment of God sets in where he allows that person or he gives that person over to their thinking process. Romans 1. He turns them over. Turns them over to their thinking. Shamelessness sets in. The conscience is seared like a hot iron just searing it. No conviction, no shame of sin. And then eventually, verse 19, they make a business out of evil. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over. See, they turn themselves over to lewdness. We're going to look at this word. It's heavy. It's the dirtiest word in the Bible, lewdness or lasciviousness. Okay? To work all uncleanness with greediness. To work means to make a business out of. They make a business out of evil. A business. We see that. Lewdness, lasciviousness, fil filthiest word in the New Testament. This is a person whose soul is so full of sinful domination that he does not care what people say or what people think about him. This, these are your Howard Stearns of the world. Okay? These are your Larry Flint's. People who live a perverted, twisted, not only perverted life, but an inverted life. And they boast in it. They parade themselves in it. They have no shame in it. You see? God turns them over to their thinking, and then eventually he turns them over to the behavior, and then they worship everything but God. Romans 1, you see? God turns them over. Three times this word, um, lasciviousness, it's never used alone. It's rarely used alone, I should say. Three times it's used with drunkenness. Okay? Drunkenness, debauchery, Galatians, um, Galatians, 1 Peter and Romans. Another time it's connected to adultery, sexual fornication, sexual perversity. It's, it, it brings a person to a point of such sexual depravity that they will do anything to fulfill the feeling having the conscience of a dog, an animal. It's just the act. That's all they can think of. Sex is a gift from God. And if you're married, you know how beautiful the gift is. It is a gift to be enjoyed together. It's not to be hindered. It's for a husband and wife to enjoy it within the confines and the bounds of marriage. It's a beautiful, beautiful gift. God invented it. He invented it. Man gets so twisted in his thinking 
that not only does he pervert what God naturally intended for a man and woman to physically go together, and that's why I believe Paul uses homosexuality in Romans 1 as an example of being turned over to a debased mind, because not only does homosexuality pervert God's original intent of what is natural, man and woman naturally go together physically, and come on now, not only does man pervert God's original intent, man will go to the extreme to invert it. A man with a man, is, just as an example, is 180 degrees out from what God intended a physical sexual relationship to be. So people say, well, is homosexuality the worst sin in the world? No. Not honoring God as God is the worst sin. And when a man or a woman doesn't honor God as God, the end result will be they'll be so twisted and perverse, so callous against sinfulness and conviction, that not only will they pervert God's original intent, they will invert it. They will do 180 degrees out from what God intended naturally. You see? So people aren't born that way. Let's line up our thinking with the Word of God. Amen? That's why Paul uses the example of homosexuality in Romans 1, which we looked at. We're going to run through it real quick here in a minute. Another way lasciviousness is used in the Bible is connected with greediness. Okay? Greed. Say greed. Greed. Fraudulence. Fraudulence. Extortion. The core usage here is, with, is covetous, covetousness. Because all of the other sins we just talked about, all are birthed out having a heart that is given to covetousness. Covetousness is to desire something so badly, it's all you can see, you're consumed with it, it's all that you want, and you will do anything to attain it. That's covetousness. To covet. To desire so badly what someone else has. To desire so badly what you don't have, that you become consumed in it, it becomes an idol. It becomes an idol. And now you're worshiping the thing that you are passionately desiring rather than God. That's a problem. In Christian, please don't fall into this. Okay, the sin in you, sin in me, we can easily fall into covetousness. How many sermons have you ever heard on covetousness? Come on now. Maybe we could come up with a list of five sermons that we've all heard together on coveting. Right? But it produces so many other harmful things. This word lasciviousness or covetousness, the first century historian Josephus says it couples, he couples this covetousness with mania. Meaning stark raving madness. Getting something at whatever the cost. To lie, to cheat, to steal, to destroy the character of another, to gain what you want in your greed. The world's full of it, non-believers, you see. Full of it. Hebrews 13.5 Hebrews 13.5 We're still in review here. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Contentment. Contentment. 1 Timothy 6.8 Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Philippians 4.11 I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. You can have goals, amen? We can have goals. Right? I'm perfectly content in the home that I have. I'm blessed. I was sitting on the front porch just so blessed. I'm a little disturbed by some of my neighbors that don't take care of their places, and it really kind of bugs me. It's like a thorn in me, man. It's like, just take care of your lawn. You know, get the Chevy off the blocks, man, and, you know, 
We don't really have that, but close, you know. It's like, man, just clean it up a little bit. You know, try to live as an example. You spruce your place up, and eventually someone gets the thought in their head. They spruce their place up, and then you get just that nice street, you know. And you sit outside, and you look across the street, and someone's got a 64 Chevy rusted out on cinder blocks in their front yard. Come on now. Nonetheless, I'm content with where we're at. Very content. God has done enormous ministry work through our home. Enormous. Just so blessed. Okay? Now, I have a hopeful expectation to eventually move into a bigger home that has more space to just keep doing what we're already doing and to have an office that's silence, you see? But nonetheless, I'm content with what I have. So desiring and having goals, that's fine. But once they become an idol, then we're stepping into dangerous territory. Amen? Dangerous territory. Non-believers, they're never content. They move from one thing to the next, attempting to fill the void, man, that will never be filled, that only God himself can fill. Right? It's like the kid who wants a new pair of $150 sneakers so bad that he'll pull the trigger on somebody to get them. That's the extreme. It happens. It happens. Never content. Verse 19, again, they're so past feeling that they give themselves over to lewdness and they work all uncleanness with greediness. They make a business, as I said earlier, out of evil. Combine, check this out. The National Football League the National Basketball Association and Major League Baseball combined together, they take in an annual, annual revenue of $9 billion. Pretty good, isn't it? ABC, NBC, and CBS take in about the same, maybe a little less. The pornography industry, annual revenue, $12 billion. Making a business out of evil. I said last week, you know, you, a, a brother had to shimmy down an alley, look over his shoulder both ways, to find like a porno shop that was tucked away next to a dumpster, if they had dumpsters back then, or next to a bunch of trash cans to slip in to get some perverted material, right? Nowadays, it is in neon lights, man. Billboards directing you where to go to get to it. Making a business out of evil. Making a business out of it. Second Timothy, you think it's going to get better? Don't sit here and say, oh, it's going to get better. Man's getting better. That's a lie. Second Timothy 3.13 says, Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Tell you what, it, 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 until Christ comes back, it's only going to get worse. So, believer, cloaked in your new grace clothes don't go putting on the old grave clothes that smell like and stink like a non-believing life and go walk around in this world that we're supposed to be light in amen strip off the old clothes don't go to the gym and then put on your sweaty clothes so uncomfortable so uncomfortable if you're a true Christian grave clothes of that old sinful humanity will not be comfortable you'll be miserable miserable Walk in the grace clothes provided for you. Given to you as a gift. Burn those things, man. Grey clothes meaning thinking, 
behavior, action, reactions, things like that. Strip them off. Strip them off. Walk in the grace clothes. Because this is, we're seeing just non-believing lifestyle, the way the Gentiles think. This is all, it's all the mind of a non-believer. It's all the mind of a non-believer. Dangerous. Just the basic issues of everyday life begins with the process of thinking, as I said. Process of thinking, life itself centers on the mind for everybody. Your mind has been transformed. Your mind has been renewed in Christ. Don't fall back to the patterns of thinking that you had in the past or the patterns of thinking that the world has, you see. Strip off the old garments, put on the new, walk in the new. Again, you sow a thought, you reap an act, amen? Sow an act, reap a, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, you reap a destiny. Brutal. Think about the criminal mind for a minute. The criminal mind. Now, crim criminologists used to say that the criminal is a product of his environment. Okay? Now, I had a friend of mine preach here. I don't know. I went away one Sunday and he preached here. He, Darren Carrington, remember him? He, he's my best buddy. He grew up in the Bronx, New York, right? Hustlers and drugs and heroin and all this stuff. He didn't become that. He didn't become that. Finally, criminologists and these people who study criminal minds and all this, they, the light's finally gone on. And they said this, that it's not a product of the environment, but rather it's a series of choices that one begins to make at a very early age. And in some, you can detect it as early as age three. Three. Proverbs 22:15. <laughs> the heart of the child is a rebel. Take the rod and drive it out. If you don't believe in spanking, please. You don't beat your kids and kill them. There's extra padding back here for a reason. <laughs> Evil is bound up in the heart of a child, and that child with a process of thinking that's against God will live out the thinking that's corrupt. And if you're a parent who says you're a Christian and you don't believe in spanking, then you don't believe in the whole Word of God. Come on now. Because the Bible's loaded with principles. When my son, my son's really sharp. Forgive me, son. When he was young, when he was about nine, you know, I've, I've spanked my kids. He's too big now, but I would spank my kids. And my son is so sharp that one time, this is what he said to me. When I, after I spanked him, I would always restore them and love them. And explain to them what happened and why it happened. And, and one time he goes, I think there's a problem with the Hebrew text there. <laughs> Remember that, buddy? There's a guy who's thinking. There's a problem with the Hebrew text. The original language, there's some translation problem, he said. He was like nine or ten. I thought it was brilliant. Okay, here it is, verse 20. Look at, look at verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. You have not so learned Christ. So don't walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, right? See, salvation is an overcoming transformation. When you get saved, it's not something that's added to you. It's, it's not something that's that of addition. It's total transformation. Total new nature. It's not two natures. It's one nature baptized in Christ. Everything that's His is yours. 
still have sin in you. We'll look at that a little later. There's still sin in me. But, you know, so many people profess Jesus Christ today. I don't think there's ever been a time where more people has professed to be Christians. Come on now. But there's no change. There's no transformation. There's no evidence that the living God of the universe has taken residence in their life. Because when Jesus shows up, man, ain't nothing stay the same. Right? When Jesus shows up in someone's life, you can't stay the same. You can't. So if you grew up with some, with some intellectual understanding of the good news and the bad news, the life of Christ, all that he is and all that he claimed to be, what he did, how he died, how he rose again, you can acknowledge that, you can say it, but you can be on your way to hell. Period. According to the Bible. See, if you did not make a conscious cut from the world... When you became a believer, there is no reason to have assurance that your salvation is genuine, biblically speaking. That's why I read from 1 John. If there was no overwhelming sense of your sinfulness, if there was no overpowering sense of your depravity and your need for mercy and your need for grace and your need to call out to God to have mercy on you and save you, is a product of thinking that says, I'm lost and I'm a sinner. You need to doubt your salvation that you profess, says the Bible. Says the Bible. If you profess Christ and you just love the world system, if you love everything that I've just talked about up until this point, you must examine yourself. Salvation probably never took place. You could have said a cute prayer. You could have walked up an aisle somewhere. You signed some card somewhere. That's proof of nothing except that you got your signature on a card somewhere. Or you said some cute prayer or something. Salvation is a radical transformation that brings you from death and depravity into the life of Jesus Christ. A new nature, you see? So that you have, you've not so learned Christ, so don't live like it. 1 John 2.15, check it out. John, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You love the world system? You get off on the world system? The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And if it's of the world, it's of Satan, who's the prince of the world. 1 John 5.19. 1 John 5.19. We know that we are children of God. Amen? We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. Or that the whole world, another translation, lies in his lap. See, nobody gets saved who doesn't realize that he's repenting of personal sin. He's cutting a swath between him and the world system. He has a new mind, a new way of thinking, a new yieldedness and surrender. And if that is not part of the transformation that one professes, you missed it. And much of the world who professes Jesus has missed it. Because they've been deceived into thinking in this teaching that if you just make some emotional move from here to there, emotional, rather than intellectually moving yourself into a whole new manner of thinking, you missed it. Missed it. The road of destruction, which is wide, right? Many who enter in that way. 
Many will cry out, Lord, Lord. Many will, many to, Jesus is going to say, look, depart from me, you who practice iniquity. I never knew you. I never. Never at all at any time. Never. He's not going to say, I knew you and you fell away. I never knew you. You profess to know me, but I never knew you. That's heavy, man. Heavy. Don't give a cheap gospel presentation, brothers and sisters. Amen? Please. Repentance precedes belief. Acts, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, verse 20, or verse 40, I'm sorry, just mark this down, verse 40. It says, and with many other words, he testified, this is Peter, and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. In Acts 20, Paul said, I have declared, declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance, repentance, and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Repentance, belief. Change of thinking, trust. Transformation of thinking, a follower of Christ. You see? So now, we're gonna, now we're into the study part about the contrast between the old and the new. We're going to move through it quickly, okay? Swiftly. Contrast number one. It's in your handout. Contrast number one. <clears throat> the contrast between a non-believer or the Gentile is Paul says, is self-centered, the mind of those who are in Christ, Christ-centered. Christ-centered. So the contrast is a non-believer self-centered focus, the believer becomes Christ-centered. There's a great transformation there. See, Christ-centered is purposeful. Self-centered, meaningless. Paul, what, did, what, what did Solomon say? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all empty. It's all meaningless. Solomon did everything there was to do, anything a man could do, he did it. Anything a man could own, he owned it. And at the end, he said, it's all empty. It's vanity. There's nothing there. Limited satisfaction. Come on now. Limited satisfaction. Here's what the Christian learns to do. Now, check it out. Please pay attention to this. The Christian learns not to do what his own mind tells him. New thinking, renewed thinking. The Christian learns not to do what his own thinking tells him to do. He yields his thinking to the authority of Scripture. He yields his thinking and lines his thinking up with the Word of God. He lines his thinking up with the thinking of Jesus. That's what the new nature produces. That's what the new life produces. And then Christ begins to think through me, act through me, he feels through me, he loves through me, and he serves through me. You want Christ to think through you, to act through you, to feel through you, and to serve through you. You don't want to serve out of your own strength, you'd be miserable. Miserable, amen? Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ lives in you now, believer. And the life which I now live in this flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your sins nailed to the cross. His righteousness nailed to you. It's just plastered right here. Stamp on your forehead. Declared free from all blame. Justification. You're justified in Christ. It means you're declared free from all blame. Sanctified. You are enabled to walk a life. You're set apart unto holiness. You are now enabled to glorify God. The hope. Glorification? There's a finish line. One day I'll practically be with him. One day I'll practically be like him. Step into glory. Come on now, isn't that exciting? 
glory. Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You have a new mind. You're renewed in your thinking. You're a new creature in Christ. He says, look, no longer live like them because you're not of them anymore. Don't look like them. Don't go put it on the stinky grave clothes of a lost, dead person. Walk out the grace that's been imparted to you. Robe yourself in it. Live it out. Amen? Contrast number two. Non-believers are ignorant of the truth. Verse 18. Non-believers are ignorant of the truth. Believers taught by Christ. Verse 21. You're no longer ignorant of the truth. Christ has enlightened you. He's enabled you to understand, to believe. And now we're taught in Him. As the truth is in who? Jesus. The truth is in Christ. The truth is in the Lord. When you become a Christian, you acknowledge your sin, you acknowledge Christ as Lord, and then you submit yourself to Him. He's the truth. He's the truth. Jesus said this. Jesus is standing there before Pilate, beaten to a pulp by this time, bloodied, standing before him. And Jesus said this to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Okay? The sheep don't come to Jesus. Jesus calls the sheep and then they come. The sheep don't bat out for Jesus. Jesus calls the sheep. His sheep come. You can take two shepherds anywhere in the world. They each have a hundred sheep. I don't care what part of the world. I was in Turkey a couple years ago. There's still shepherds out there. You can bring a shepherd from over here, a shepherd from over here. They each have a hundred sheep. They come, they have lunch together. And all the sheep just come and they mingle amongst one another. Now you have 200 sheep. Those shepherds are not tripping out about, oh my, which ones are mine? All they do when they're ready to leave, ah, let's go, let's go. And all the sheep of that shepherd will follow him out. Jesus is the good shepherd. When he calls those who are his, they follow. They follow. Pilate answered Jesus when Jesus said, everyone who's of the truth hears me. Pilate says, what is truth? The truth? It's in Jesus Christ. See, truth is not rhetorical. Truth is not abstract. Truth is not relative. Please, believer, don't fall into the, this whole mindset of, well, well, you know, truth is relative. I mean, Jesus is my Lord, but, you know, Susie Smith, my neighbor, you know, she believes in whatever. And, you know, she's, she's serious, so I pat her on the back and, you know, we'll just believe together. You have nothing in common. It's a lie. The truth is in Christ. Your, your search for truth in life ended when you came to Christ. The search is over, man. It's over. Done. Rejoice. You're a new creature in Christ. Throw off the old grave clothes, right? First John 5.20. Oh, just listen. Just listen closely. This is beautiful. First John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, that we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. There's no eternal life outside of Christ. That's what you have. That's the new you. That's the new you. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 11.10, he said, as the, truth of, as the truth of Christ is in, in me, no one shall stop me. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me. Contrast number three. Verse 19. Non-believers are past feeling, callous. 
believers, verse 22, no longer given over to deceitful lust, but you become sensitive to the sin that is still in you. If we say we may have no sin, what are we? We're liars, right? You've been given a new nature. A new nature is in Christ, but I still have sin in me. Still have sin in me. Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul grew up in Tarsus. Okay? He was Saul of Tarsus before God transformed him and named him Paul. Okay? Now, if you do some historical background about the city of Tarsus, when someone murdered somebody, they were brought before the magistrate. They were brought before the judge of that place. And you know what they would do? One of the, um, one of the methods of um, consequence, the person that they killed, they would take that dead carcass and tie it head to head, arm to arm, leg to leg, torso to torso, and you had to walk around with that dead carcass attached to you. And a lot of times, the toxics, the toxins and all that of the decay would cause the person who carried them to die. Capital punishment. So, whether or not Paul had that in his mind, being from Tarsus, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? We can say the same prayer. I have a new nature, but oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? A new nature cloaked in humanity. What are we called to do with the old man? Crucify him. Crucify the sinful lusts. Crucify it. Bury it. Don't go clothing yourselves in the cloths that a dead man are wrapped in, is what he's saying. This is we see this, this great contrast. No longer walk in the old corrupt ways. There's nothing more miserable, as we begin to wrap up here, than a Christian who's walking in disobedience. Much more miserable than someone who's totally lost, right? When you become insensitive to the sin that God pricks your heart with, and you resist, 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 you're going to get miserable. And I know. And I know personally, because I know the man in the mirror. And I know when i got unconfessed sin in my heart. And I know when I've got resistance or I've got a problem with a person and I haven't yielded that to Christ, I get miserable. Why? Because I have a new nature and I'm in Christ. And it does this. The sin in you and that new nature, this is what it does. They're contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you want to do, right? And that's what Paul's saying. But what Christ has given you is a new nature. And he wants you to walk in the new suit that accommodates the new nature. A new nature can't put on old stinky clothes. Because if you walk in it, you're going to look like a dead man like the rest of the world, you see. Strip it off, he says. And in contrast number four, you have a retrobate mind of verse 19. Past feeling, they've given themselves over to lewdness. They've given themselves over. And we... In Christ, verse 23, are renewed in the spirit of your what? Mind. We're not retrobate anymore. Good for nothing, degenerate, that's what it means. We've been renewed. Renewed means to create fully and completely anew. Totally new. Not just addition, total transformation. Amen? You're a new cre creation in Christ. And now here it is, guys. A renewed mind, you know what? It's got to be filled with good stuff. 
Your renewed mind must be filled with good stuff. Your renewed mind must be filled with God's stuff. Because if you take a new mind and you fill it with the pollution of the world, if you sit and laugh at and applaud with the things that God hates and the things that God abhors, that's putting on dead men's clothes right there. You laugh at perversion, you applaud it, that's putting on the grave clothes of a dead man. So take them off. Fill your mind with truth. Fill your mind with that which properly and rightly represents the mind of Christ. What you take in visually, you've heard it. What you take in here, look at me. What you take in here and what you take in here, it ends up right here. If you pound your mind with pollution, if you pound your mind with perversion, if you pound your mind with twisted worldly perspectives and philosophies, it confuses you. Because the devil is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He will wrap things up in a pretty package, looks good, smells good, feels good. It's all wrapped up in a package which is nothing but a lie. And he will attempt to murder your testimony in a world that brings glory to Christ by getting you from one subtle thing and one subtle thought and one subtle wrong thought right into a pattern of sinfulness, which is just to cloak yourself again with the grave clothes. And then you look like, smell like, and live like someone who's not redeemed, someone who's not new. Then we blow our testimony. Christ's name dragged through the mud. Amen. The result of grace clothes. It's just like I said when I served at Horizon. We take homeless people off the street, bathe them, cut their toenails, cut their fingernails. Some people get the lice plucked out of them. You feed them, you give them new clothes. We did not send them out in the same clothes that they came in. They have new clothes, clean, to walk out in. That's what you have in Christ. That's what you have in Christ. So put on the new man. So here's the overarching contrast. It's summed up in two verses. Verse 22. Put off concerning your former what? Come on. Conduct. Lifestyle. Put it off. And the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Don't take the bait of the devil which is an attempt to lure you into a trap, right? If you lend yourself to lustful thinking, greedy thinking, you will end up in a trap with a bunch of deadness surrounding you, unable to walk out the power that you have in Christ till you repent, till you change your thinking and line it back up with the one whose sins were nailed, you, your sins were nailed to him, the cross. So, how do we do it? Put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off. Put off the old man. Christian, check it out. This is not a once and for all thing. Christian, how often is it? Every single day. Every day, moment by moment. Begin with your thought life. Every time you have a corrupt, sinful thought enter your mind, don't entertain it. Disregard it. Confess it. Make your relationship with Christ so personal and intimate that, it, it, that it's right there with the way you think. You see? And then the process of thinking, if it lends itself to that process of thought, 
lustful thought, eventually you very, may very well end up living it out. Don't let them get a foothold on you, right? Don't, don't even go there. Don't even go there. Not, it's not once and for all. It's daily. So how do I do it? Simply, God's Word, right? God's Word. Spend time in God's Word. Feed yourself with truth. Feed yourself with books that declare the glory of God, that declare the person of God, that declare the face of Jesus Christ. Feed yourself with His Word, with things about Him. Prayer. Check it out. Confess, repent, and move on in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sinful thought? Confess it to Him. Turn from it. Don't entertain it. And then move right on. Move on. Victory. You have victory in Him. Just walk in it. Walk it out. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? And He went off to pray. And He came back. What was His disciples doing? Sleeping. What did Jesus say? Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. Watch and pray so that I do not fall into temptation. Me just like you. And then the life of Christ and the grace clothes that He's provided you will be walked out and lived out through your life shining as white as snow. Bearing witness of the one who saved you. Bearing witness of the one who cloaks you in his righteousness to a world that's dying and stinking and on their way to hell. And if God sovereignly chooses to draw them unto himself and uses you as an instrument, you have the glorious good news in you and being lived out of you, you see. That's an evangelistic lifestyle. That's a good news life. Because we've got the power. Off with the grave clothes, on with the grace clothes. And may God bless you as you walk in the power of the Spirit provided for you. To right reflect the one who saved you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you, praise you, for the grace that's provided us through the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that as our sins were nailed to the cross, that they'll never be brought up against us again. We thank you that you have justified us. You've declared us free from all blame. And I pray, Lord, that we would simply as Christians live in response to the gracious goodness you've provided for us. And God, I want to pray for those today who don't know you. They're still living with the nature they were born with, simply a nature that cannot meet the perfect standard that you command. Sinlessness. God, I pray that you do a work in their heart that they will see that they can't do it and that they would call on you through the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, who paved the way, who took the sin of the world, Lord. And I pray that they would receive your call, that they would respond to the call of the great shepherd, becoming a sheep. Sheep of the flock, Lord, which is saved by grace. And with our heads bowed, if you do not know Christ, if you are cloaked, in the grave clothes you were born with, I say, call on him today. Tell him you're a sinner in your heart. Tell him that you know you're a sinner. Tell him that you understand that he's holy. Tell him that you repent, that your thinking's been changed, and you want him. And then lend yourself and yield yourself to him, and he'll empower you to walk out a life that reveals his grace. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling for your glory always in Jesus' name.
If you're not a Christian, you want to become a Christian, you understood today by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that you are a sinner and you need His grace, don't hesitate to come talk to me. I'd love to assist you. God bless you.